Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa Buddhang namang sanghang namasang It's the first Sunday of the month, so it's uh, time to uh, contemplate together the Dhamma teaching found on the page of our Forasanka calendar for the month of February, which is a teaching by Zanchar again, and this follows on from last month's teaching, uh, and it says... We practice on and on, but we fail to attain our desire. So we practice until we reach a point where we're practicing for no return. We practice in order to let go. So last month, uh, some of you remember the, uh, the Ajahn Chah pointing out the, the mistake of of being locked into a mode of practice which is always striking a deal, looking for something in exchange, you know. I'll put my time in on the cushion so long as I get such and such a degree of peacefulness. Uh, or I see myself progressing towards enlightenment. And so that um, materialistic, uh, commodified attitude towards the spiritual life Ajahn Chah was highlighting as um, something to be avoided. And in this month, uh, looking, considering a little bit more closely, the understanding we have of desire. So we practice on and on, but we fail to attain our desire. And we desire peace, we desire freedom from suffering, we desire insight, but we don't get it. And so he doesn't say give up or find a belief system to reassure you that everything's okay. He says keep practicing until you become tired of that perception, that approach, that relationship to desire. It certainly doesn't say get rid of wanting to be free from suffering or wanting to develop wisdom, compassion, integrity and so on. He, he's not uh, passing a judgment on desire. But uh, in effect he is asking us to inspect the way we engage desire. Because if we're clinging to desire, what's the effect. Now certainly I'm sure all of us would agree that that desire is movement. Desire is, when there's desire there's movement. It's not like there's nothing happening. It's not like there's stillness, contentment. In fact, to be identified with desire is the opposite of contentment. I'm desiring, I'm not contented. I'll be contented when I get what I desire. So Now we all start like that. 
So again, it's not a a case of saying we shouldn't have desires. You don't get that message in the Buddha's teaching. It's not merely imposing a judgment on where we're at, but looking more deeply into where we're at and saying, is this working? So we practice on and on, but we fail to attain our desire. So we keep practicing until we become disillusioned with that way of operating. And what happens is we find we can keep practicing, but we're not clinging to desire. The impulse, the inclination to purify the heart from greed, aversion and delusion is still there. The interest in wisdom and compassion is still there, but something's changed. And what's changed is the heart has seen the mistake of being identified with desire. Letting go has happened. It's just, this is basically what growing up is all about. You know, like children uh, learning how to do things, learning how to how to hold a pen, or these days I suppose it's operate a keyboard, uh, learning how to ride a bike, learning how to drive, all those tasks that we are challenged with as we go through the early stages of life. In the beginning we get it wrong, we get it wrong, we get it wrong, and then we get it right. And so this is how it is with our practice. Part of the message here is don't be afraid to get it wrong. And we've got the precepts, and the moral precepts give us this uh, boundary. Is so fortunate. These are not these are not intimidating moral injunctions about thou shalt not or anything like that. But basically, the statements of what we've looked into and we consider as according with integrity, and we, then we make a statement. I undertake the training to refrain from harming, from killing, from stealing, uh, abusing, uh, deceit, and these uh, basic five precepts that that we establish ourselves within defines the field within which we live. And then because we have that we can feel safe and then we don't have to be afraid to get it wrong a little bit. Now we're too, too dramatic and too heroic. Well, then maybe we we get it too wrong. We hurt ourselves, so we don't want to do that. But with regards to the desire we have to uh, begin practice, the inspiration that we get uh, to uh, walk the path liberation, it involves desire. The Buddha had that. All beings have that. But in the beginning, it's polluted desire. It's unrefined, and as a result, we keep suffering. So, but we keep practicing, and then eventually, after getting it wrong, we eventually we get it right, and we say, "All right, that's uh, that's the way to engage desire." And to some degree, we we keep having to learn this, you know, even if we've seen it somewhat. We there's another level that we have to learn the same thing. Yeah over and over again as practice deepens. We learn something, we learn it on a deeper level and a deeper level. And so 
with regards to the Buddha's teaching on the way we engage desire, we've got to keep relearning this lesson. That if we cling to desire, that's the opposite of peace. We do it. We disturb ourselves. When we identify with that movement in the heart and the mind that we call wanting desire, then it turns into craving. And craving drives us to despair. Yeah. You see it on all sorts of levels, how people are, are in a very fortunate circumstance, very well off, every reason for being very contented, and you're not contented. Because, well, it's not because they haven't got enough food or clothing or shelter or medicine and friends and entertainment and distractions and safety and all these things. Even if all these things are a given, there can still be a very high degree of despair and frustration and restlessness. Why? One reason. Because in their hearts and minds there's the habitual clinging to this movement that we call desire. They haven't seen it. They haven't learnt the lesson. Now hopefully everybody here been meditating long enough, contemplating sensitively enough to be able to expand your field of awareness and abide as that just knowing mind that sooner or later catches a glimpse of desire not necessarily as soon as it arises but very soon after it arises in the mind it's there and instead of following it you don't become it you don't cling to it you don't identify it as it it's there you know you could move to cling to it but you don't and then it's the next thing has gone you've been there the whole time watching desire rises and ceases it can be felt but there's that which knows the feeling and with that comes a level of understanding now if we don't have that understanding and it would seem that the vast majority of people don't have that understanding they think they are the desire and if I don't get what I want I get frustrated and I'm entitled to get what I want and it is all so unfortunate to see these otherwise very fortunate uh, individuals not reaping the benefit of <coughs> their, their previous good karma and suffering as a result. So, get this message. It's very important that until we understand that clinging to desire creates craving, then we're always going to be unpeaceful and confused. And all sorts of confusion comes. And as the years go by, it gets worse. We use our willpower to deny the consequences of our action. And we just get more and more confused and we blame the world more and more or we blame ourselves and anything but open up and investigate and understand. This This is really tragic that this happens. And then these, this craving, this craving expresses itself. Uh, what we generally call the, the five nirvana, the five hindrances. They're like the five bullies that push us around you know, on the playground of our mind. 
these are the five bullies that we meet. And they pester us, they humiliate us, they intimidate us, they oppress us, try to overpower us, they threaten us. And if we've invested enough in denial of the reality of desire, in other words, if we've invested enough in craving, we've potentized it enough, then these bullies are real, well, apparently real monsters. And our puny little aspiration for freedom from suffering can feel very threatened by these monsters. And we've got a big task on our hand. But as our life, it's our practice, and so we have no alternative, but we need to deal with them. So how do we deal with them? And dealing with bullies in the outer world and probably all of us have, if not received, not been on the receiving end of bullying, we've seen it, or maybe we've even perpetrated it. It's a, uh, a terribly regrettable aspect of, of growing up, particularly in present-day society. They somehow suspect that it, it's not, it's not been always the case, and So when we encounter bullying, how do we deal with it in the outer world? You see bullies, well, it's difficult to like them. It's difficult to like bullies. Maybe it's even difficult to feel compassion for bullies. But the last thing we need to do is hate them. The thing that really works, the thing that that really helps, particularly if you're in the position of being a a parent or a carer or a teacher or somebody who somebody on the receiving end of bullying might turn to, what really helps is to be able to understand what's going on. Understanding bullies is the answer, not hating bullies not judging bullies, not condemning bullies, who stop and look into the lives of these bullies. In in many cases, you find that what's going on is these, if we're talking about particularly the stage of adolescence, when a lot of bullying takes place, of course, unfortunately, it it, uh, sometimes continues on into adulthood, but it can be very evident during adolescence and often what's going on during those years is these poor kids are suffering from overwhelm. Their chemically fueled desires are just too much. You know, the age of 12 or 13, the changes that take place in the body and, and then without proper guidance, all this energy can drive you crazy. At the very stage of life where these kids are most energetic, most in need of guidance and mentoring, they're actually most likely to be abandoned. And if they don't have, as is usually the case these days, unfortunately, if they don't have adequate uh, role models, mature, strong, capable adults who are not judging them, but 
supporting them and helping them to transit this difficult stage of life. If they haven't got that, what happens is overwhelm. And these kids, then they start acting out. And the chemicals drive them into behaving in ways that are absolutely ghastly. And and again, probably something all of us will have heard or witnessed uh, at some stage in life, how much remorse and regret these bullies would feel later on in life. And they think back at what they did to other people, their peers and their uh, people in their school or or their community and have tremendous regret because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were doing. In other words, ignorance is really the the king of the realm of bullies. Now, if we understand this, if we have a perspective on this, then that understanding protects us from rejecting, condemning, judging the bullies. Wherever we see it, whether it's young people and just acting out and and heedless, abusive, cruel ways because somebody is the wrong shape or or the minority colour or the wrong sexual orientation belong to the LGBT community and and that somehow intimidating and so they're subjected to horrendous bullying. It's obnoxious behaviour. It's cruel behaviour. But what's behind it? And and this is something of course if we continue with our investigation of our inner life, our relationship to our own inner bullies, we start to see what's behind it. When when we get attacked by these inner tyrants and resentment or sadness, deep sadness that every time you wake up in the morning that deep sadness is is there again, or remorse. You know, you, you, remorse arises in the heart and mind and you cling to it, it becomes a real tyrant and it terrorises us. It just, it, like a bully on the playground, it destroys all joy, all ease, all contentment, all peace of heart and mind. And how do we deal with that? Well, just fighting it, hating it, doesn't work. Hopefully, as with saying before about our relationship to desire, hopefully, eventually, we discover that we that letting go is possible. Now we fear there's a there's a fear that if we let go of sadness, it'll take us over. If we let go of the fight, it's gonna we're going to be consumed by it. But letting go here doesn't mean running away. Letting go here doesn't mean sticking your head in the sand. Letting go here means expanding your field of awareness. We're still fully attentive. We're still really watching what's going on. Worry, anxiety, doubt, these interminable bullies pester us. We're still looking at them, but we're not 
clinging to the desire to get rid of them. This is why it's so important to heed this teaching that Buddhism gives us and that Ajahn Chah is, is talking about here. If we practice in the beginning, yes, with desire, that's our first reaction. I want to just get rid of these five hindrances. I want to get rid of these inner bullies. I want to get rid of ignorance. I want to get rid of confusion. That's our initial approach, but we've got to get more subtle than that. And we start to investigate and still we start to see for ourselves that there is a different way of operating. Mm. We can stop wanting these things to go away. Mm. We can approach meditation and not have to engage wanting peacefulness and wanting to get rid of confusion. We can be aware of those mind states as we start to meditate. So we sit down to meditate and you're watching, feeling your heart, listening to your mind. And, and if there's that movement of, I don't want to have to suffer, got it, see it. Just see it. Just see it. Don't have to get rid of it. The movement to want to get rid of it, we can see that movement. We can see the impulse to want to get rid of suffering. We don't have to follow it. Now that doesn't mean to say that we want to suffer. There are those two extremes. Indulging and wanting to get rid of. But there's also, as we all know, the middle way, which is the way of awareness. The way of just knowing. We just know, oh, wanting to not suffer is like this and don't move on come back to the body come back to awareness expand take a deep breath and physically expand so we have this reminder in the body to create the space of just knowing and then still the bully's there but he's like this one little person in the in a huge, great big playing field. Yeah, that's very different from this muscly character in your face. Yeah. So the relationship that we have to the bullies that we experience, whether it's the outer bullies of the world, like political bullies, of which there are plenty, yeah. religious fundamentalist, evangelical bullies, they really get off on our hating them. Mm. Religious fundamentalists, when they present their story, if you come back with indignation and anger, they feed on it. Mm. And so it is with the inner bullies, the five hindrances, craving, expressing itself as a five hindrances, uh, ignorance expressing itself as the defilements, yeah. as the kilesa of the mind. Yeah. They feed on our reacting. So the training we have in restraint and renunciation, uh, you know, often people misperceive this. They think that oh, those Buddhist monks have really got a problem. They don't know how to how to enjoy life and you know always practicing composure and restraint and contempt. Restraint and composure is not the goal. 
you know, it's like a, a lot of the other virtues that I've been talking about lately, it's like a, a spiritual muscle that you develop. You know. If we are habitually reacting all the time, then we're actually losing energy. You know. Somebody comes and teases you and you know, at work and, and you react back to them, they'll come back and tease you again. But if we inhibit the reaction, not repress, that's different, that's going to the other extreme, but contain the reaction, feel it, look into it, until we understand it, and letting go happens. You see through the bully, and not intimidated, and so you've taken their weapon away. And so we come across it, as I said, uh, unfortunately, regularly in daily life, uh, if we have, if you're helping younger people who are on the receiving end and don't have the skills, don't have the resources, don't have the ability to exercise restraint in the way as adults we, we potentially do have, then it's our job to help protect them. Yeah. But also it's our job to, to help educate them in right understanding of what's going on. The bully, basically, as I said, is suffering from overwhelm. Their heart is too cramped, too closed, to contain all the passion that they're experiencing. The energy of adolescence is, is so intense. And what they need, is, what they need is, is wisdom and kindness and guidance and support. And, and in traditional cultures and Perhaps even still today, maybe some of you will have read about the in uh, the traditional Australian Aborigine tribes. They they would manage this transition from childhood into adulthood with tried and tested rituals. You study a little anthropology. You probably come across this, some of you, and there was this thing they would go through when the the boy reaches 12 or 13 years old and, and the, the men of the tribe would come and rip him away from the mother. Yeah. Up until that point, the child has been dependent on the mother and the mother's bringing up her son. But at that point, her job's done. And from that point onwards, it's the men's job to introduce this young man into the adult male world. And so it's... Uh, Men come along in the middle of the night, apparently, and rip the child away, and the, the mothers wail and scream and make a big scene. And it's all a performance, but the function of the this scene is to establish very clearly in this young person's mind that they've left the child's world, and now they are a young person, a minor player, in the adult male world, and used to be the case anyway that the young man was sent out into the desert on his own and to see if he could survive. And by the time he came back, he still had all the energy that he went out in the desert with, still had the youth and vitality that he went out to the desert with, but something had changed. The ritual had changed his relationship to that wild energy. There was now a humility. There was now an understanding of his place in the society, and that dealt with the difficulty 
that happens at that age. Now, young people these days, um, unfortunately, in most cases, don't have anything like that. In fact, society worships youth just because they're more beautiful than the oldies, more energy than those that have grown older. They get worshipped. But there's no wisdom in that. What needs to happen is these young people need to be understood and supported and protected against the risk of becoming totally self-important. Because if you become totally self-important, it means you, your heart contracts and your awareness collapses and you take yourself far too seriously and then your world becomes intolerable. Mm. There's no space for all the enthusiasm that is the characteristic of that age. So really what young people benefit from is compassion, wise compassion, not judgment, not rejection. Even if they're bullying, resenting them and or teaching those who receive the bullying to be revengeful, is a very naive approach and, and it tends to lead to the victim becoming a bully themselves and the cycle never ends. So whether it's the outer bullies of the world that we need to deal with or the inner bullies, the expressions of ignorance, the consequence of misunderstanding desire and clinging to it and creating craving, the solution is to pull back and to investigate. Or as Ajahn Chah was saying, we practice until we reach the point where we're practicing for no return. We're practicing in order to let go. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.